Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. My name is Steve Kerr, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. With us today is uh, an emergency management director from uh, a Florida county, Ed McCrane, a colleague and friend that I made uh, from the time I relocated to Florida, and uh, we bumped into each other at the uh, uh, Governor's Hurricane Conference uh, just a few months ago, which uh, Bill Johnson spoke about in episode 16. It's a it's a big state, but it's a small emergency management network. Ed, welcome to the show. Hey Steve, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, tell us about your background. It's uh, it, it's an interesting background, going back to your military days and how that segued into emergency management and some of the some of the real in, intense events you've been involved in. Sure. You know, I, I started out um, as a young infantry soldier joining the army in in eighty one, and uh, I went through the ranks on the enlisted side. Uh, eventually retired as a master sergeant in 2023. But during that time in the military, you know, I was a combat soldier uh, and I stayed in the infantry line platoons until I got these commanders along the way that would pull me out of the line and put me in the support platoon to run logistics. And I hated it, but I did it for a year. Well, they'd pull me out and make me run the arms room when I was a young corporal. And I was like, what am I doing in here? But I learned a lot. I had one in Hawaii uh, who retired at the Army recently as a four-star general. He was my lieutenant colonel at the time. He he put me in the operations shop, and I was the non-commissioned officer in charge of the operations shop, uh, the tactical operations center in the field, learning a lot, sent me to the battle staff school. And it wasn't until after I got into emergency management that I realized each one of those experiences kind of prepared me for it. Uh, my original plan was to go into law enforcement. So in 2000, I went to the police academy on my own time and dime and um, got, you know, got certified as a reserve officer. But then 9-11 occurred in 2001. So uh, the Army said, well, you can't get out on your regular retirement time. You're going to have to do another year or two. Uh, you're on a stop loss because we don't know where this is going. So right after um, I was able to finally retire, the Florida National Guard uh, in Florida had a position for military support to civilian authorities during emergencies and disasters. And they had a grant from the Homeland Security grant. And uh, so I got that and I did that for about nine months. Uh, and I really was learning emergency management then. I, I was in Tampa at the Homer Hesterly Armory. 
Um, and I got up one of the government cars and I got some travel orders and I started going from Miami to the Keys to all of South and Central Florida, meeting the emergency management directors, introducing myself to them, getting a copy of their comprehensive emergency management plan, coming back to the Army and setting up like a library of all their plans um, and just kind of going to their training. Uh, the FDEM Region 4 coordinator at the time was a guy named Ken Rudnicki. Um, he's still, I think, in Fairfax, Virginia, somewhere, still doing EM. He looked at me one day at one of the regional meetings, and he said, you should take my job. So what do you mean? He goes, I'm, I'm moving on to something else, and I think you'd be great. You know, when they post it, you need to apply. So I applied for it. Uh, about two weeks after that, I got a call from the state that said, hey, uh, you applied for this. Can we, we'd like to interview you. So I studied hard on, you know, the four phases of emergency management, everything I could think of. Uh, and a guy named Skip Duggar, um, who was the regional coordinator manager for FDEM, a retired Air Force Master Sergeant. I was a retired Army Master Sergeant. He came down. Um, we did the interview in the Hillsborough County EOC with Larry Gispert. Um, and uh, two weeks later, I got a phone call. They said, hey, you know, you, we've selected you. This is what it pays. You, if you want it, let me know. I said, yeah, sure. I'd like to check this out. Um, so he said, all right, get on a plane tomorrow to Tallahassee, and I'll pick you up at the airport. So I flew to Tallahassee, landed. He picked me up in, uh, in his uh, government vehicle, state vehicle, took me to the state EOC, met everybody on the first floor, second floor. And then uh, at the end of the day, he gave me the keys to the vehicle, laptop, phone, pager, and said, go to the hotel, come back tomorrow. I went back to the hotel, came back the next day, met everybody else. And he said, okay, hit the road, go home. Uh, guy's going to come to your house. He's going to put in a phone line, a fax line, bring you a copier, a fax machine. And, but there was no training really. <laughs> so, but, uh, so I had already met all the emergency managers in that area. So it was kind of like a transition from the guard job to a state job. So it was really smooth. Uh, and there were some great people, uh, great emergency managers, every one of them. I had the Tampa Bay area and I figured that was my territory, you know, uh, Manatee, Pinellas, Hillsboro, Citrus, Hernando, um, Pasco, and Polk. That was it. But then uh, they sent me to the uh, Hurricane Center, to the Tropical Meteorology course. I learned about hurricanes. And my first deployment, so to speak, from DEM was to Miami-Dade. And that's where I met Bill Johnson, who you had on recently. Um, Bill Johnson was uh, the assistant director in the Miami-Dade EOC. I was the state liaison. I was there for the uh, free trade area of the Americas uh, riots and agreement that would turn into riots. Right, Bill uh, was uh, episode 16, just dropped a few days ago. And uh, for the listeners, I would encourage you to check out the episode. Bill, uh, as the assistant emergency manager director for the county, had a huge leadership role in the response to the value jet accident in the Everglades. He describes a very complex uh, and challenging response to uh, a commercial airliner down in such a, a challenging habitat. Yeah, that was, yep. that was a good one, Steve. That was a really good one. Um, I encourage people to listen to it. So uh, after that, you know, in August of 04, you know, I had barely a year in the division and a major hurricane, Charlie, well, first tropical storm, Bonnie, actually happened in the middle of FIPA mid-year, which was being held in Sarasota County at the Hyatt. Um, so we listened to the conference calls with the state from the Hyatt. Everybody went back home. Bonnie turned out to be a, a rainmaker, but then Charlie was right behind her. Um, 
Charlie was going into Tampa Bay, into my area. Uh, everybody called me and said, hey, you're the new guy. You're getting your first storm. We'll all be there for you. Don't worry. Uh, but then Charlie, as we know, went into Punta Gorda into Region 6, not Region 4. Uh, so everybody in the EEOC is high-fiving each other. They were happy. They were shutting down. And I'm like, I work for the state. I guess I should I go down there. So I called uh, DEM. And they said, yeah, get down there. I got down there to find a bad DEM for the listeners is Florida State Division of Emergency Management. Yeah, I'm Management. sorry, Florida Division. No, that's fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, they tell me to go down there. I went down there and then uh, I guess they figured out I was a guy that wasn't uh, afraid to go into the worst stuff. So they that's what they did for me for the next two years. Uh, they said uh, I went up the line where Charlie had hit. I went to Arcadia and Bartow and, and Hardy County and, and just tried to put out issues. Uh, went through Charlie, then Francis, then Ivan, then Gene in 04, uh, back to back. Uh, in 05, we had a, a lot of storms. We had uh, Dennis and Katrina, Rita, and the state was heavily involved helping Mississippi and Alabama. And then I had this opportunity. I actually had Region 4 and 6. I walked into the Sarasota EOC, and they were looking for a new EM chief. And the staff at the time encouraged me to apply. So I thought, well, what the heck? I'll give it a shot. They're not going to hire me. I've only been doing this for two years, but they, I think they looked at my military background and my seven storms I just went through and uh, they took a shot on me. Uh, so I went ahead and, and uh, started that, been there 18 years now. Uh, during that time, you know, we've had most, mostly uh, luck, but we've had some tropical storms and we all went through COVID-19. Uh, we had three major hurricanes that all kind of went nearby us. Ian, the closest with the most damage, but uh, again, we've been- And that was just uh, last year, hurricane season 2022. Yeah, 2022, September 28th, uh, Ian was the big one. But we learned a lot from Irma and we applied those lessons in Ian and it was a much smoother response. Irma was the, the very interesting storm with a lot of issues that came up. So let's talk about Irma because I hear a lot about uh, Irma uh, as a Florida East Coast resident. Right. So you're on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast, south, southern part of the state, Palm Beach County. And uh, the, uh, the the residents here, emergency managers I know here, have a lot to say about Irma. What, what was your crisis management story? Well, you know, Irma was interesting because if you look at if you go back and look at the five day air cone, it uh, it encompassed the entire peninsula. It was like swallowing Florida. And this is 2017, was it? 2017, September timeframe, uh, early September. And uh, basically the whole state of Florida was in the cone the entire time. So that caused a, a mass evacuation from South Florida north, because where else are you going to go, right? You can't go east or west on this peninsula. So everybody's coming through us uh, and uh, people are urging me to open shelters and I wouldn't. I said, no, I got to let these people go through because if we have to pull the trigger, I won't have any space for our people. So I opened one um, as a host shelter, but we uh, we kept ours kind of on the side and we saw this massive influx of people. Our, our plan at the time, which had always been in the history of Sarasota County, was to open four shelters uh, at a time and two medical needs, special needs. And uh, we never had to open more than that. So we if we did, we would phase them in. So that, uh, what happened during Irma was when everybody ran to the shelters, they were going to places that weren't open yet, trying to get in. 
the, uh, there was a, the media was like, why aren't these open? What, what's going on? So we had to open more and open more and open more. Are we uh, talking about a transitory population or county, your county population? Or it sounds like was, a little bit of both. Both. We had we had people from all over South Florida. You know, we it, there were so many people that um, we broke records. We had 20 something thousand people in 14 different shelters, 3000 pets. Uh, so from that, we, you know, we, we did a big after action review after Irma from all the things that occurred, uh, you know, other things that occurred during Irma, we had a, a medical needs shelter where uh, in the, in the peak of the storm, which luckily we didn't get a direct hit. It was to the East, but during the highest winds, the um, special needs power was out and the generator that we had there failed. So fortunately, we had a first-in team there with firefighters, public works, heavy equipment that were staged to go clear roads right afterwards. They saw what was going on, and uh, the medical personnel there from the health department needed assistance to get these folks on oxygen. So they were switching them over to tanks, but they needed power for something to make the thing complete. These guys took a front end loader, went out onto the soccer field, picked up the light generator sets that they use for night games, brought them over to the front of the school, fired them up, hooked up extension cords, and then they, they saved the day and then until the generator could get fixed the next day. So from that, we now have generator technicians uh, at, the, at the schools uh, that have those so that they can do a quick repair if necessary. Uh, a lot of, lot of stuff happened during Irma where, you know, our shelter capacity uh, is not, you know, we always have a deficit because we have more people than we do have space for. Um, but the, the opening of all of those meant we needed staff. So we had to request the National Guard uh, to come down and help us run those. Uh, so we had National Guardsmen at every one of those along with school staff. Uh, Red Cross really couldn't handle that many uh, shelters in our area. They didn't have enough volunteers. So from that, uh, we now have about 400 county employees trained and all of the school staff administrators trained. We've done walkthroughs of the schools and county staff runs the shelter as far as the people go. And the school board staff, you know, may manage the facility, the culinary, the custodial, and the security. So, uh, you know, that was a big heavy lift that, that really helped us out during Ian. But Irma was a very interesting storm, uh, just continued to, to show us um, some weaknesses in our planning. So we did an after action review. We brought in Craig Fugate, the former FEMA administrator who had just retired, uh, along with a state, a county, and a city emergency manager to look at our plans and procedures. And, and we ended up with an AAR after action review, which is available online uh, with 93 enhancements and, and modifications to our processes, which we have implemented since 2017. And uh, we use those during Ian. All 93? Well, 90 of them were implemented. Three of them depended on another entity doing something which they don't want to do. I'll leave it at that. Um, the other thing that came out of Irma, we had a, um, just before the storm, we had one of our little city mayors, uh, and I won't name the city or the mayor's name, but he decided that he was going to open up a community center as a shelter for the people there uh, against our wishes. Um, no, no planning for it, no staffing, no food. And uh, luckily we didn't get a direct hit and it was just an overnight stay for those folks. 
but that's something that we had to come back and address and say, no, you know, you're not going to open anything that's not approved by us. That's not an EHPA, Enhanced Hurricane Protection Structure. It's, it's not rated to handle. It's not on an island. It's not surrounded by water and all of that. And the other thing was the transportation. A lot of our elderly folks in South County, um, we can't put a shelter down there because of the proximity to the Gulf of Mexico, the low elevation. They're in a level A or B. Um, they have to go as far as Northport or up in the county, North County, to get to a shelter, and they don't drive. Um, so we created a transportation plan where we can actually pick people up at their front door with one of our you know, paratransit buses, with their supplies, with their pet in the crate, and, uh, and take them there. This is post Irma or, or during all Irma? Post Irma, yeah. All that stuff was implemented post Irma, and we implemented it during Ian. We did this. We ended up transporting 82 people from their front door to the shelter and back. And we call the shelters evacuation centers now. Uh, that was another change during the AAR because we want people to realize they're the last resort. They're the evacuation center you go to when you don't have friends or family or you don't leave the area. Uh, and we really describe to people in, with graphics and drawings of what it's like to be in one of those shelters. Um, you know, you've got thousands of people, you're going to get 20 square feet of space on the floor to bring in your own air mattress, your own sleeping bag, your own food and water. We'll eventually feed you uh, when the culinary staff gets the cafeteria going. Uh, but you need to bring a flashlight because it's a school. It's a Monday through Friday building, doesn't need a generator to run everything, and it doesn't have one. So if you lose power around that area, you're going to lose power of the school. So we did a lot of education uh, to the public, the transportation plan. And then we made every one of our shelters pet friendly. We put pet teams there, uh, you know, with some rules. You have to have the crate and you have to watch your pet and all that. But we did that because during Irma, we had only four pet friendly. And we opened 14 and people were showing up in the height of the storm, rains and wind with pets at the ones that were not equipped for it. And uh, they, you know they're not going to turn the people away, so they say, "No, bring it in. It's okay. Yeah. We'll figure it out." We replaced millions of dollars worth of carpet uh, after. That. So now the well, school. Let me go back. Had, uh, let me go yeah. back to a couple of things. Uh, yeah. Enhanced hurricane protection shelter was the word. Area. Just or structure. Area. EHPA. Okay. It's a it's a it's a standard in the in the shelter standards from the state of Florida. Um, it's basically, it was based originally on uh, ARC 4496, American Red Cross Regulation 4496, which gives you the shelter standards. But the EHPA, uh, all new schools being built in Florida have to be built to the EHPA standard with at least 50% of the campus being that way so you can utilize it for shelter space, unless they're in an A or B zone. Uh, in, a, in a surge zone, uh, then they get an exemption from the emergency manager. You can, I've signed a couple of those. Right, right. Oh, that um, makes sense. But recently, my, my school district uh, came to me a couple of years ago and said, we're building a K-8 uh, way inland, east of 75, outside of any surge zone. And I said, I'd like to make that 75 or 100% EHPA. And they're only required to do 50%. So we did the HMLP grant, I believe it was, from the state of Florida, their mitigation team. We were awarded it uh, for the school, $750,000 to the school district directly for reimbursement if they do the 100% EHPA. The total cost is 1.4. So the county has to divvy, you know, give up the other 500,000, but we're gonna have a 100% EHPA 
K-8 school east of 75, one that thing's built in a couple of years. Another question was door-to-door uh, -door pickup. You did, was it some 80 some odd pickups door-to-door? Yeah. -door? Does that include uh, um, high-rise population? Here's, here's based on my question. When I was in New York City, of course, New York City is uh, is a city, you know, comprised largely of high rise buildings, even in the outer boroughs. So in one of our barrier island communities called Rockaway uh, or in Coney Island, either one of them. So Rockaway being Queens and uh, Coney Island being Brooklyn, there are high rise buildings, whether they're public housing or condo buildings. Um, the hurricane evacuation plan we used back when I was in, in emergency management in New York City involved. Uh, picking up individuals along bus routes and uh, there were shelter stops along the way and they'd all be brought to casualty. I'm sorry, uh, an evacuation clearing center, not casualty. That was another plan. I'm thinking of uh, an evacuation clearing center. Um, so did, did this include places where high rise occupants would, uh, would aggregate for pickup? Any, any, any building whatsoever, anybody could do this. It's just a matter of signing up in advance uh, so that they can do the, the routing of how to most uh, effectively pick people up in a route. Um, so you would, we ask people to go online to our, S, our website and you can register for uh, evacuation center transportation, name, address, phone number, you're on the list. And then our, our trans folks take it from there. Uh, they call them ahead of time, make sure they still need that ride and then they pick them up. Uh, but anywhere, high rise, uh, condos, uh, mobile home park, or whatever the case may be. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, other major challenges. Uh, it sounded like uh, you probably had problem with with water, power uh, during Irma, feeding the population. You know, twenty thousand people, uh, both a residential and a transit pop transitory population. It sounds like you had to have, you know, some fairly significant challenges. We did, but fortunately, you know, Irma was to our east, so it was interesting. I, the superintendent and I got on the radio to all the shelters, to the principals that were there and said, hey, please try to talk to the people, ask them not to rush out the door till we can get our eyes on the ground and get ro roads clear. Uh, and uh, by the time the sun came up, superintendent said, Ed, good intentions, but they're gone. Everybody that could got out of there. We really only had vegetative debris damage, no construction, no, no major structure damage. I think we got 85 mile an hour winds at the peak uh, when it passed to our east. So we really didn't have that, but we did have the power outages. Um, we did have for about 11 days. Um, so we had to set up cooling stations. We looked at the cities and county areas, community centers, buildings that had power. And uh, we set up cooling stations, comfort stations, so people could come get cooled off, have some water. Some of them had food if they were like in a church. And then our, our transit guys came up with a great idea. And that was to use two of our large buses, the new buses that have AC, they have Wi-Fi. They can charge their phone on the bus. They can get Wi-Fi on the bus. And we drove those buses down to the neighborhoods in the South County that where people really couldn't get anywhere. Um, and uh, drove them in, parked them, and had a big sign in the window that said comfort station. We'd let people know they were available. Uh, and now I thought that was a great idea that we probably will end up doing again. Um, and it just came out of, uh, out of the blue. It wasn't anything that we had previously planned. Uh, but the power was a big issue. Um, we ended up 
with our medical needs, our special needs folks that uh, couldn't go home because of the lack of power. We work very closely with elder affairs and with our local healthcare facilities, nursing homes. There was actually a new assisted living nursing home facility being built that hadn't been occupied yet. Um, we worked out a deal and it was going to be something like $200 a day for each of these 12 people that we had to put there. And uh, all we needed was a big room. We were sending our own staff and uh, the CEO or executive director of the company said, you know what, we're not charging them. Let's let them come. This is a public service. So we, they gave us a huge room and the health department set up the, you know, the bunks in there or the medical beds, whatever, and, you know, ran it until each of those people could eventually go home or to other care. Uh, we ended up with one man who ended up in the hotel and cleared it out. But um, it's just a great partnership that we have with all of our, our cities and our health department that makes things like that work. Which is a segue to my question about uh, command and control or incident management, if you will. Um, what what I'm assuming your EOC is stood up. Is it called an EOC? Because they're start different EM agencies are starting to call them different things. Well, our building is the, center. Yeah, our building is the emergency operations center. Yeah. The room that we operate out of is we call it the multi-agency coordination center. Okay. And we okay. use NIMS ICS structure. I heard Jeff Goldberg say something similar to that. The building is called the Emergency Operations Center, and the 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 room. I don't think it may be called that. He may be. He may mirror what you're doing, but uh, that's interesting. The in you know in New York City, certainly we had an EOC Emergency Operations Center. In New York State, we had an Emergency Operations Center. And the utility I worked in Colorado, we had an, an Enterprise Command Center (ECC), yeah. and the county. Uh, it was a a hybrid county city emergency operations center. In fact, the uh, director of that agency, Pikes Peak Region OEM, is going to be on soon. It was uh, an uh, an emergency coordination center, and there was a there was a reason for that. And he talks about that. Well, the we call it the emergency operations center too because in that building is our nine one one dispatch, which is our warning point, our contact center, which is the non emergency public hotline. You know, some some counties set those up. As the storm is coming, they put people in a room with phones. These folks are there every day of the week, and they just kind of uh, take over that, that non-emergency role. And then our JIC, our Joint Information Center, our communications team is in there. So the whole building is really that operations center. That, the room right. that we bring our partners into is the MAC. Okay, so in the MAC, you have uh, the human service agencies, the transportation agencies, essentially everybody that's making all this you're talking about work. Yes, exactly. And we're fortunate, you know, uh, I had a county administrator, I've been through five of them in my 18 years as an EM chief. And uh, recently we had one and the, and the current one really very, they're all been supportive of us. But uh, one of them said, you know, we're one team. Every county employee will have an emergency role. So since 2012, uh, we have had every county employee has a designated emergency role, whether they're an evacuation center staff or setting up a point of distribution, whether they work inside the MAC. Uh, when I first started my finance section in the EOC, and it was um, two people from finance that got assigned it. You know, Now I have the CFO, the procurement official and her whole team at their own table doing all the financial stuff. Uh, you know, I have the transportation director, the general services director, the public works director. Uh, we have a room after Irma 
the public utilities director said, hey, Ed, you know, if I could have a room in here with some smart TVs and stuff, I could run, I could turn the water off and on and check the water systems through SCADA, computerized system. So we took a closet, converted it, dropped the ceiling in it, put an AC, put six smart TVs, and that's his department operations center now. For during an activation, that's where his he and his staff are doing exactly what he wanted to do. Uh, and it also serves as their continuity of operations facility if their main building were to get a blue sky event. So it's, that is perfect. That is so absolutely great. perfect. Yeah. Having been an emergency manager at a water utility and an energy utility, I understand how SCADA can be used in, in a remote capacity to do exactly what you're saying. In fact, we had a water disruption one day and we had our water department set up. So they would have been the operations section in our ICS structure for this event. And we set them up right in the main theater of the ECC. And uh, they they were displaying the gauges uh, and the, the images right there on the screen. And the uh, operations chief, who was the general matter of water operations, was able to make decisions based on what he was seeing right there. Straight up, this is probably eight years ago, seven years ago, you know, and, it, you know, we made it work. Yeah, it works great. I mean, they're, they're in, I even put a bunk bed in there for them. So it's oh, great. But uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, and things like that, ideas like that come out. You know, we also the other thing we did too uh, from Irma was the East County is ranches, farmers. Uh, that community, you know, took a pretty big hit with fallen trees, fences down, cows getting loose. So we partnered with the cattlemen, the ranchers. There's a gentleman named Chuck Johnston who uh, is a rancher. He used to be a firefighter or captain in our fire department uh, before I started. And um, he lives out there. He's part of the Cattlemen's Association. And we formed something called the SARG, S A R G. Sarasota Agriculture Recovery Group. So um, we trained them with our ham radio, our amateur radio operators, uh, got, got them all licensed. About 20 of them are licensed, bought equipment for them. So they have radios, they have base stations as well as portables. We formed the Sarge with the, the ranchers, the cattlemen, the ham radio guys. The, um, they kind of partner with SART, the state uh, state agricultural response team from uh, Department of Ag, and also the, the range deputies, the agricultural deputies from the sheriff's office. So great partnership. Uh, after Ian, that group was so well-formed, they went out and we had a dairy in Manatee County to our north that lost like 300 cows, milk cows. Um, and so they went up there and set up a distribution site for farmers and ranchers with feed and hay and fence material and water and food and a very, very successful uh, operation. Of course, I love the name. And of course, uh, Sarge, I mean, that just that just absolutely works. And uh, I love the fact that you were able to, um, uh, you know, I attack a challenging situation by uh, assembling a group like this. And you, you, you know, what I like about that is that you're having individuals uh, that are confronted with challenges, help support their own response and recovery. Well, you know, and, and the credit goes to them for being willing to do it too. They're willing to do it. You know, they, they said, Hey, we help us out. We'll do this. Uh, they're willing partners. And not only that, they do exercises like every couple months, every six months, they do a major exercise. Uh, and they simulate something. Uh, they they take everybody. Uh, they took me with them on a tour of the um, stockyard in Arcadia to show that whole operation and how many cows go through there, how many livestock go through there, and they go to market. And this is the industry that could be disrupted by a storm. And 
Uh, it just, it's an incredible group of people. Um, I go to the cattlemen's meetings. It's always great for a steak dinner too, right there on the farm. I <laughs> bet. They're, they're good people. So they deal with uh, not only, you know, the, the immediacy of a, of a response to a major event, a hurricane, but they're also, sounds like they're into continuity of operations. Yeah, I'll tell you another interesting thing that happened during Irma. I got a request from a, a lady that had a 150 miniature horses on a, on a ranch that um, their water trough that goes down the line, the pump wasn't working and they did, she was having difficulty getting water to them. So we sent a fire truck out there, a, one of our field uh, brush trucks full of water and filled up the trough a couple of times for them until they could get. And then we sent somebody to help them uh, restore that power on the generator. And a couple of days later, the sheriff said, Ed, did you send a fire truck out there to put water in the trough for those miniature horses? I said, uh, yes, sir. Did I do something wrong? He said, no, man, those are all evidence an animal cruelty case that the sheriff's office is running and those we they are in our custody um and those are evidence and they are out there and that lady's the caretaker of them oh wow that's she probably just that's saved interesting. Our evidence <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool you never know you know it's like you got to make a decision uh to help somebody out and it turns out being even more important than you realize but isn't that pure crisis management isn't that the stuff we do that's not listed in a manual that's not listed in an ics book yeah. that's not listed in an emergency management uh a higher ed program and and i mean this all in a very positive way because all those things set people like you up to make critical decisions based on situational awareness and intelligence and yeah, get know, stuff it, done it's yeah you're right and you know our business is a lot about relationships and connections and i think as uh, rolodex management ed you've heard me say that exactly so i i'll give you one that happened during ian i got a call from a uh, assisted living nursing home uh, director and she knew me from a presentation i had done and she said ed i need your help she said, what's wrong i said she said we're no we have no power uh, we've notified FPL. We, uh, we have our generator running fine, but the AC is not working. The generator is not running the AC. Uh, and our, our AC guy says he can't come. So I put out the word to all of my contacts. Uh, I ended up getting an AC guy, uh, mom and pop business to go out there. They looked at it and they said, well, the generator runs great. The AC runs great, but the AC is not hooked up to the generator was never wired so he said we're right. going to help them do that you know and then the power came on a little bit later but yeah i mean it's like how do you how do you draw the line people need help you got to figure out a way to make it happen yeah i don't think there is a line i i i think that right there is an absolute great question the line is you push the line to wherever you have to to help people especially those in need first of all you know human mass care you know, save the lives, move them to a place of refuge and safety and worry about the bridges and stuff later. That That's yeah. always been my model. But, um, you know, one, once the lives are saved, being able to do the things you're doing for the community, it's exactly what we're there for, what we're there for. It's exactly what, what we're there to do. These are great stories. Right. You know, we tell people we can't, uh, I tell people all the time, I can't see through walls, can't read minds. You need help. You got to let us know. You call 311. We have a 311 contact center and you tell them what your situation is. You know, we have volunteers and donations. 
We have our, uh, our community organizations active in disaster. Um, and every day, you know, somebody's coming up with a new way to help others. Uh, there's a lady in our community. Um, her name is Heather Hackett. She has a new app called Local Relief, smartphone app. She created it during Ian because she saw that on social media, she couldn't get any information on what was going on, who to help. So she created one that's based for that, all hazards. Uh, you need something, you put it on there. She's partnered with Sarge as their liaison. Of course. Your side. As a matter yeah. of fact, we found out she had delivered made deliveries of food and water to that site that they had set up at the dairy farm and didn't even know, you know there was no connection at that time. She was introduced to me by the former FEMA administrator, Brock Long, at that governor's hurricane conference that I saw you at. Um, and it turns out she's from Sarasota. Her and I have connected since. I put her in touch with all the people that I know, like Volunteer Florida. And recently she went to the state EOC and met with them. And I think she's working on some type of an agreement to make that available statewide to every county uh, and maybe even beyond. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just great. People like that that come up with ideas uh, to do that. We have a long-term recovery uh, group right now, TRG. Um, Barbara Cruz is the president of the South uh, United Way of South Sarasota County. She's the chair of the LTRG, partnered with all these different agencies. All of the foundations in the county came to me and you know, said, hey, we'd like to meet with you and find out how you operate. What's, how can we help after the storm? So we have these large foundations that are you know, philanthropy organizations with a lot of money that want to put their money in the community to help people. I mean, that, this all came out of Ian. Um, and, you know, it's just it's just great. But it has to be because these organizations don't want to dump money, but, you know, pardon the, you know, that directness into something that doesn't show productivity. You're obviously running a program that has uh, gained the respect of the community and people want to put money into something that they know is going to work. You know, that money is in the furtherance of of helping their community that they reside in. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, that unfortunately, when we have a major disaster, a lot of bogus, should I say, uh, organizations show up that are collecting money and it doesn't get to the people. And there are a lot of good ones, too, that do. And, and I think that's filtering that out is the key. That's not a, a, an uncommon story. Uh, you know, uh, there are, you know, ill-intended people in our society. And they certainly uh, rise up to the you know, to the top during uh, during 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 disasters. You know, when we think about disaster management, there are so many different places to go and so many different corners of a disaster. You covered just about all of them. I can't think about any, anything you didn't talk about from from Irma. And I'm glad I'm I'm able to provide you with uh, a platform to help convey these um, lessons to colleague emergency managers, especially those that are coming up in the community or are just uh, entering uh, into, let's say, hurricane areas. But I, <clears throat> I'd i like to say that what you're talking about and the program that you're developing might sound like it's hurricane specific, but it's really not. Any type of disaster, you could put any of these things things to use for. And that's that's one thing I learned very early in my tenure as a as a career emergency manager. If you write, and I'm I'm talking specifically about hurricanes now, because hurricanes have it all: command and control, mass care, rescue, sheltering, food, 
recovery. I mean, I, I'll just go down the ESFs, you know, power, water, uh, electric, it's all in there. You can pretty much sheltering, you know, you can pretty much apply a hurricane plan uh, as uh, as your, your all hazards plan, or at the very least, it should be the major component of your EOP or CEMP, whatever your jurisdiction is uses is using. Definitely. I mean, all, yeah, you're right. All those things are there. You know, uh, the one piece that doesn't really show up is maybe the family reunification center, family assistance center, but then you have that in the form of the DRC. You know, a lot of people don't, uh, you know, one of the things I've been pushing a lot since Ian in my talks is uh, a lot of people do not have five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 for their hurricane deductible on their insurance for their home. So they get stuck. Uh, you've got to pay that portion. The insurance company will take care of the rest. So at the DRC, the uh, Disaster Recovery Center, the SBA shows up, Small right. Business Administration. People think, right. well, I'm not a business. That doesn't apply to me. But it does. Uh, the SBA was able to give out loans, low interest, long-term payback right. loans to people to pay that deductible so the insurance can take care of the rest. So information like that getting into the community yeah. th that they don't know that, that that's available, um, it helps. Um, I'll tell you something else I learned during Ian. I had the, the honor and privilege to go down to Lee County, Fort Myers area. Um, they asked for me specifically uh, to come down and partner and I, I was happy to do it. Uh, I was following on with a guy named Frankie Lom and Jeff Goldberg, who were there the first two weeks after Ian. I was there weeks three and four with Mary Blakeney from Palm Beach. And uh, the first week I was in the EOC helping out, deputy IC and all that. But the second week I went out to Pine Island and I helped them on Pine Island. And I discovered groups out there that county didn't ask for county maybe knew they were there maybe not or not didn't know what they were doing but they were out there mucking and gutting people's homes very organized fashion it was americorps and a group called the cajun navy ground force getting right of entry hold harmless from people going in gutting them clearing them out drying them out so people could begin construction or even move back in and not sleep in their car or their tent um, there were feeding sites there were donation sites uh, and I had never really seen that in my 18 years because the EOC director is kind of trapped in the castle, you know. Uh, yeah. So if you can't leave and go see that yourself, I say have a reconnaissance team, you know, send your scouts out and say, go out there in all these areas, especially the unincorporated part of the county and find out what's going on. Map it out. Where are they feeding people? Where are they doing this and that? Uh, and kind of map it out so you know what services are being provided out there and what is not, what areas are not covered, so you can focus on those. I was going to ask you about Cajun Navy because I'm familiar uh, with their work in uh, some of the storms in Texas. Houston comes to mind, and I'm going to say Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, if if I'm correct on that. Um, but I, I assume that at some point they probably made their way into Florida and uh, and, and AmeriCorps as well. So, But you're right. We don't want to not have them do what they're doing, but we also don't want to do duplicative work. So if they're already taking care of something, uh, it's important not to it's important to know that you don't have to now commit resources to something that's already getting done. And at wow. the same time, you don't want to, you know, really incorporate or do you? Let me ask you this a question. Do they get incorporated into some sort of overall emergency management structure? Well, that's a, I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you asked that because they were not. 
Um, right. I was actually right. sent out there to run down a rumor that they were offering to demolish people's homes for free. And I found them and it wasn't, it, I, I discovered that there's multiple Cajun navies. There's like branches of them, if you would. Okay. I didn't uh, know it, that. Yeah. Yeah. There's the United Cajun Navy. There's the Cajun Navy that you recognize with the, the blue collar guys with the boats that go when it's flooding and they rescue people at their own risk of life. Uh, but this is a new group that formed about six years ago. It's called the Cajun Navy Ground Force. Okay. Uh, they've got a website uh, at, uh, at Go, Go Cajun Navy. Uh, is uh, they got a LinkedIn page. They've got uh, the uh, founder of it is a guy named Rob Gaudet. He's uh, from Louisiana. Him and his wife um, basically manage it. They started it five years. It's a 501c3. They actually have gone and met with, you know, uh, Volunteer Florida. I brought Volunteer Florida down and Chrissy Rojas talked to them. Um, and she said, all they need is a, a letter of sponsorship from the county and they can fall under that Volunteer Florida umbrella. Uh, and that's what I got. I worked with the county, got a letter sent from the county to Volunteer Florida sponsoring them. So then they could just get resources to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, but it was great. Uh, so they're, you know, you learn a lot when you're out there on the on the ground that, you know, like I said, as an EM director, you don't see. So if you don't have the ability to go out there yourself, and usually we don't, send somebody out there. Go connect with these folks. Right. And they, you know, and you know what's interesting? After I did all that, working with a county and Cajun Navy to get them recognized and get them supported a little bit, they left there in, just before Christmas. And then we had the tornadoes in Rolling Fork, Mississippi. Rob was on the ground after the last, just after the last storm went through and established a command post and brought in his team and ended up falling under Mississippi, uh, Volunteer Mississippi. And the state of Mississippi recognized them and had them running the Volunteer Reception Center in Rolling Fork with hundreds of volunteers feeding them, bunking them. Um, it's great. Uh, when I was on the island there with them, they, they, they bought for a very good price, the command trailer from the poly, um, polyclos. Remember uh, the young girl that was uh, kidnapped in like 30 years ago in Florida? I don't want to say her name wrong. I think it was polyclass. Her dad started this foundation for missing and exploited children. Uh, he had a command post with a six-wheel drive vehicle that drives into it. He sold that to the Cajun Navy Ground Force and it was red, it had the name of the foundation on it. I saw a picture of it the other day. Now it's wrapped in purple with a Cajun Navy logo, Cajun Navy Ground Force oh. logo, and it's their command post. Uh, it, it's amazing. You know, they are they're trying to get bigger and more organized and be able to respond uh, to all states for disasters. So I think I, I, I think we I think what you did there was great because once you mind uh, you know, and and ascertain what they were doing. You know, the two objectives were met: provide them to support to allow them to continue what you're doing, which segues into to understand their operation, to avoid duplication, because now they're set in essence part of your operation. You got people that want to help, they want to contribute, and if they're capable uh, and they're actually helping people, got to let that happen. Exactly. I mean, because we 
county county government, city government, we can't go on people's property. We don't have the, the mechanism to go, hey, sign this paper, we'll go in your house, we'll remove all the contents, put it at the curb, we'll muck it out, we'll cut your drywall, bag it up, spray some antibacterial, anti-mold stuff, and then you can move back in your home. We can't do that. That's what they were doing. And matter of fact, the, the um, public safety director for EMS, uh, I asked him, I said, Cajun Navy Ground Force wants to know if there's if you guys have found any medical needs that people have in St. James City on the south part of Pine Island. And he said, no, 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 everybody's pretty good. He said, the problem they need, they need their houses muck and gutted because of the flooding. They had four feet of storm surge and a drywall. They're sleeping in their cars. So that's what's happening in the middle part of the island too. But the Cajun Navy Ground Force is taking care of that. He said, how are they doing that? So, well, they have a, you can walk to their site drive up to their site and fill out the form and get on the list. Or you can use this web link. They had a web link. He said, well, give me that. We'll put it on the, the tablets of the EMS guys when they're driving around. If they find somebody that has that need, they can sign up right there on the, on the tablet. And that started happening. Do they have corporate funding sponsors? They're trying to get them. They're, they're working on getting corporate funding. Um, you know, they, they, everything they do is based on the funding. Um, they're doing some work and they still have work in Kentucky. They have some contracts in Kentucky doing some work from the flooding from back then. I think they're going back into Rolling Fork to do some work. And I hear they're coming back to Florida. Um, but uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. You know, the, the right. founder, Rob, is actually a uh, entrepreneur, not an emergency manager. Right. Uh, and he has a software tool that he created called stability.org, stability.org. And uh, I saw that in operation down there where he basically uh, you can cr create an incident or go back to a previous incident. And in this case, he had every single service that was being provided in Lee County on this map. And you could hover over it and you would get you know, a box would pop up telling you what's there. Um, you can sign up for stability.org if you are a business, a, a survivor, a volunteer, or a nonprofit. I try to get them to put an EM tab on there so we could at least tag into it, read only, and see where everything is. He's considered. Well, I, I, I guess the other question is and this is really wonky, and I hope I don't, you know, put some of the listeners to sleep. This is volunteer work that can probably be applied as in kind funding for Stafford Act remuneration for either. Probably not IA, but maybe for PA somewhere. Yeah, and they along do. The they way. do keep their volunteer hours, and they track them, and they can provide that to the county. Okay, definitely. And then okay, all right. So, all right, good. I was I was in the neighborhood there because I wanted to. You know, it's important. I mean that that that's that's emergency management stuff. Okay, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going to start. Uh, as we start winding down, I took so many notes here. There's so many things to talk about. Let me see if I can pull out some highlights. Okay. I'm going back to the beginning. Uh, meet and greet, building the Rolodex, right? When you became an emergency manager, you pounded the pavement, you know, you hit the road, rubber on the road, knocked on doors, got to know everybody. Yes. Uh, the most important tool in an emergency manager's toolbox is the Rolodex, right? And uh, for us old guys, that's that's literally a bunch of business cards stapled to a wheel. And uh, today it's your contacts directory. And I would just urge if you have contacts on your phone, make sure they're backed up somewhere. And that is. And print them out and put them in a three ring binder. That's actually not a bad idea because when the phone dies, because the power's out, there goes your contacts. That's wow. a, that's a great idea. Um, 
early in your career, your EM career, right? You sought out risk-specific training. So it's important to, and that was the hurricane training you went to. So for emergency managers, if you're in an area that's subjected to ice storms, get the ice storm training. If you're in a hurricane area, get the hurricane training. And then there, of course, there's those threats that we're all confronted with, the, 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 the cyber attacks, the mass violence, the things. Make sure that you have exposure um, to uh, some of those uh, other threats as well so you know what it, what it potentially uh, could be like. Um, crisis management, uh, direct travel to the EOCs, you um, during uh, one of the early incidents, you went to the EOCs, you did some crisis management by knocking on doors, solving problems, and moving on, on to the next one. Uh, generators, you had powers, power out at shelters, and you were able to, th this is because you used imagination and creativity, you and your team, you needed to move generators, you got some uh, heavy equipment was it front end loaders picked up the generators and moved them to a place you needed to be. Yeah, that's, those guys on the ground did that on their own. Yeah, they they, right. they that initiative. Right, right tool for the right. <laughs> right, of course, right tool for the for the right job. But more important than that, it's it's the right people for the right job. Because here's my problem: figure out how to solve it. And people have in, incredible capacity when you when you throw a, a a problem at them, and they typically come up. Uh, with a, a, a solution. Um, I think this is, this has to be called out. The AAR um, and the 93 enhancements that you and your team and your partners were able to accomplish, over 90 of them, I think is definitely worth being called out. And that emergency, or rather that after action review is available, you said somewhere online and the list on our website. If, if you go to scgov.net and in the search box, you put uh... Uh, after Irma after action review or Irma AAR, or they can contact me and I'll, I'll send them the link as well. Okay. And your contact info will be in the show notes. And I was going to mention that at the end and I, and I, and I will do that. Um, ensuring that uh, uh, hurricane shelters, or you call them now evacuation centers, meet the Florida standards for enhanced hurricane protection. That's critical. Oh, I love the buses with the air conditioning and the Wi-Fi, right? Simple. The buses exist. They're, they're air conditioned. They're Wi-Fi. Let's put them in a place. Tell the folks where they can go get some relief and, and recharge their phones and stuff like that. Um, Sarge, love Sarge, because you're talking about a major component of the population, or rather a major component of, of your county, and how um, not only did you assume responsibility for that, but you sort of, you, you level set the field, transfer some of the responsibility and build that framework of teamwork, uh, working with an organization such as Sarge, the, the, uh, the, the, the agricultural group. And they basically um, plug right into our ESF 17, working with our IFAS extension. So it's, you know, they're recognized by us. And uh, so how many ESFs do you have? Uh, we, well, we have the, the 18, but we're actually adding a 19 and a 20 for cyber. Uh, and we have an 18G, which is uh, interesting. My team came up with that. So 18 is business and industry. 18G is government. So if one of our cities has a governance issue, needs support, we have a representative from the EOC that focuses on that. Uh, I, saw, I saw recently, uh, actually at the hurricane conference, one of the counties on the West coast of Florida uh, operates their EOC under the life, FEMA lifeline structure, which is something new. 
um, I want to learn more about that. And because I think there's something there. And I think that's something that we should all just uh, just track. You probably know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. The challenge you have with any structure is is you got to use something that is relatable to the non-emergency management people that come to the EOC to work. Uh, you know, all your county staff that are public works utilities, they understand ESF3, I'm public works, this is what I do, plug them in. But sometimes they don't understand some of the higher ICS language or and if you do the lifelines, it's great, but then you may find that you need multiple ESFs for each lifeline. It's not a cut and dry. You know, you can't say one, two, and three, you are this lifeline because yeah. you need one over here and three over here too. Um, so, and it, whatever works, you know, that's the beauty of it. Whatever works for your county, for your, and, and it's safe and it's structured and people know how what to do. Go for it. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. You cannot take a doctrinal approach because every county, every city, every town, every state is different. Leadership is different. Experiences are different. And you have to make work uh, what works best for your constituency. And if you're in public sector, that's your community. If you're in the private sector, that's you know your organization, business operation, your leadership. Yeah, I talked to a rural uh, EM director who said, you know, my justice of the peace or whatever is this, he's the fi finance guy, or this guy is the, the mayor plays this role. And they're high level people playing roles in the EOC because they don't have a lot of employees, they don't have a lot of staff. Uh, you right. know, I feel for some of these guys that there's like the EM director and a secretary, and they've got to do everything that we've got to do in our mid, mid size and larger counties. Yep, I get that. Any final thoughts? Uh, Ed, some of the uh, more critical things, some, you know, couple, four or five key takeaways. Yeah, I would tell you this. I would say um, two things. One, the 911 center, uh, I don't know, most counties do this, but the, when the winds reach 45 miles per hour, we cease to send out emergency vehicles because of the wind and the threat to the personnel. So if you call 911, you're going to get an operator that's going to guide you through, stop the bleeding, CPR, whatever the case may be. Um, but those operators that are doing that are used to sending help. They can't do it during the hurricane event because of that situation. So it's stressful for them. And, and if somebody doesn't do so well on the other end of the line with their situation, it's very stressful on that operator. So have some critical uh, stress management folks help in the in the EOC in the 911 center when that is happening so that they can immediately address that with that individual operator uh the other thing is look that out is that is an absolutely fantastic takeaway because we care about people as emergency managers thank you for bringing that up yeah and then the other one i would say is don't forget about your own people uh you know do a quick accountability check of all your personnel all your employees wherever they are across the county doing different jobs and then have them give them the opportunity to go home and check their own home out. And if their home is damaged, the roof's gone, the trees through the roof, get them help, get, relieve them from work and let them go take care of that and get them the help you can from your own, you know, volunteers and donations, your faith based group, you know, get a tarp on that roof. Don't just let them continue working and not care about what they're doing. And, and I will tell you one other thing when you consolidate. A lot of times we consolidate from 14 shelters or evacuation centers down to three or four. Whatever those three or four are, that you're going to bring those people that still can't go home to, um, to reduce the amount of 
places you're using, make sure those three work, make sure they have power, make sure the toilets work, make sure they have food, and make sure you bring in a new fresh staff to run it. That's a big one. Um, that's one of the lessons we had from Ian. That's a good one. Uh, I, because as, as you start rotating um, facilities, downsizing facilities, reducing the number of them, they're spent. They have they have seen, especially when twenty thousand people occupied your facilities, there were yeah. probably sanitation issues. There were a number of issues that that needed to be attended to, and having that fresh staff come in with uh, you know fresh energy. Well, twenty thousand was Irma, and they were gone as soon as the sun came up. But Ian was the five thousand, so it doesn't take twenty to do that to make that mess. You're right, though. Uh, it, it's important to have a fresh staff. And I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I would just say learn lessons, watch podcasts like yours, learn lessons from others because you may be dealing with that same incident in the near future and you don't have to go through an incident to gain some knowledge and to change your procedures. Right. Uh, you can learn from somebody else. And that was an information-packed hour and change. That was incredible a story and lessons learned. I would encourage um emergency managers especially those entering our our field uh to seek you out and uh you know tap you as a source of, of knowledge if they have a problem or a question or they want to learn something uh as i mentioned your contact information will be in the show notes okay. i'm really uh, appreciative of you reaching out and, and, and willing to come on the show and uh i'm so looking forward to uh, getting a cup of coffee with you if i find myself on the west coast or if you're in the palm beaches before the hurricane conference next year let's break some bread sounds good i'd like to hear some of those new york stories and and you know and you can think about this whole thing as the tale of two storms what we learned from irma we applied in ian um, so that's pretty much it. And, and that's it. I mean, if you, if you don't apply your lessons learned, you're making a big mistake. And I'll, I'll close by saying, I fear we as a community uh, and as a society might be doing just that with the lessons learned from COVID. COVID's done. We're burnt. We're fried. We don't want to talk about it. But there were so many things that came out of that that we should be talking about. I'm just not quite sure we as a community are doing that understand. Thanks again, right. Steve. Thank you, Ed. I want to thank uh, Ed for being on the show, for joining Five Minutes to Chaos, for sharing his uh, experiences and crisis management story. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or your questions, which can be submitted uh, in the comments area of the show or direct message me on LinkedIn. If you'd like to get in touch with Ed, his contact information will be available uh, right there in the show notes. And until next time, embrace the chaos. Thanks, Steve. brings us to the end of this episode of five minutes to chaos we hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way remember confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided it is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience 
By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.